The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. All right, guys. Good evening. It's good to see you guys. Thanks so much for coming out. I'm super pumped to be with you guys tonight to get into the Word, to see what the Lord might speak to us. Um, If you guys have your Bibles, we are in the book of Esther. Super excited about it. So go ahead and pull out your Bibles. We finished Nehemiah last week. For those of you guys that come normally, uh, if you want to know where the book of Esther is, find Nehemiah, and it's right next to it. It's actually the next book, which is cool. So we are going to blast through this book. It's going to take four weeks. Uh, it's going to be it's going to be a rapid pace. Even though I'm only doing one chapter tonight, I promise we're going to uh, we're going to really we're going to really take this thing in four weeks. Uh, and then I think Jeff talked a little bit to you guys about what's coming after that. We sat down and spent some time planning out, like basically through the, the end of the year uh, for our midweek service. It's going to be really fun. We're doing a biblical worldview uh, kind of a deal, and so we picked various subjects. Um, I'll have a flyer in your hands soon that'll have the dates and what subject is on there. Uh, all kinds of, of various subjects, everything from race to war to sex to marriage to kids to politics to all of the hot button, hot button, hot button issues that uh, are, are out there politically and on the news and things, just seeing how we can view those things through um, a scriptural mindset uh, with a biblical worldview. So that's in about uh, four weeks we'll be doing that. But for the next four weeks, we're going to be in the book of Esther. Super excited, super pumped. Um, let's pray and we'll get started. God, I'm, I'm so humbled and so thankful to get to do this, Lord, to get to study um, and learn from you, God, and hear from your Holy Spirit, and then to get to share with these guys that are so hungry to learn the word. Um, Lord, we're all just here as students of the word. We're all here just as disciples, God, wanting to grow, wanting to change, wanting to see strongholds in our heart be broken down, and God, we pray for just that. Lord, I pray for this book, Esther. God, I pray that you would anoint it, Lord, that uh, the direction of it, the themes of it, the theology of it, the philosophy of it, all of these things, God, uh, would change and transform our minds and our hearts to look more like you, God. Lord, we're desperate tonight for you, whether we know it or not, and we need you to speak to us prophetically. So I pray that we would be here with open hearts, open minds, open Bibles, Lord, um, and ready to, to, to listen and ready to hear from you, God. We pray that in Jesus' name, amen. Cool. So no matter what Google tells you, okay, and Google isn't always right, just so you guys know, no matter what Google tells you, there actually isn't a ton of religions out there. Okay, I know, and it, said, it says that there is. If you Google different world religions, let's say you find a pie chart, you'll find one that says that a large majority of the world is Islam, a large majority of the world is Christianity. You'll find one that'll say a lot of people are atheists, a lot of people are agnostics, et cetera, et cetera, Buddhists. That's actually not true. There are two categories of people religiously in the world, okay? There are those that worship Jesus, and there are those that worship self, okay? There are those that worship Jesus, And there are those that worship self. For our purposes this morning, we're going to call this the God complex. Okay, you guys ever heard of that? The God complex. Okay, anyone and everyone that is not worshiping Jesus in their heart fully is suffering from a God complex. Okay, every religion. Look at Mormonism. For instance, okay, Mormonism at its heart is essentially that Jesus was a created being and worked himself up into a position of deity where he now rules and reigns, and you and I, if we were Mormons, uh, would essentially be able to do the same thing. We could work enough, do enough good things to actually work ourselves into owning our own planet and being our own God, et cetera, et cetera. The problem with that is that you become God, which means 
you are God, right? Which is self-worship, which is a God complex. Islam. Islam's really interesting, actually. They don't believe in the word salvation because they believe that you're born uh, perfect and that you are corrupted as you go through your life, but ultimately you have to make a series of decisions that either make, uh, go in the good pile or the bad pile, and when you get to the end, uh, Allah will look at what you've done and decide whether you are good or bad, and you get to either go to the good place or the bad place. So ultimately, that puts you back in the position of God. Why? Because you're the one making the decisions. You're the one deciding how good you want to be, how bad you want to be. There's no need of God to intervene and change you from the inside out. There's no desperation for salvation. It's all about what you do, so therefore for it is a God complex. Uh, Zen Buddhism, this one's kind of funny. It's like our Western version of Buddhism a little bit. It's all inward focus, so it's all about the inner self. I'm actually good on the inside. If I can just focus on myself enough, then uh, I'm actually going to be a better person because I'm good on the inside. Again, making yourself God. You are the source of goodness. Atheism is the biggest form, actually, if you don't know this, the biggest form of a God complex you can possibly have. I can't think of a more arrogant thing to say than that you have all wisdom and all knowledge in the entire universe and that you can say without a shadow of a doubt that there's no creator, that you were an accident and you're just here and there's no God. That's the most arrogant thing you could possibly say because we don't have limited knowledge. We have limited knowledge. We don't have unlimited knowledge and therefore that is God complex. It's putting yourself in the position of saying, I know why I'm here. I'm here because it's an accident and no one made me. Secular Christianity, okay, what's secular Christianity? Secular Christianity is, is what we're seeing more and more of, and that's Christians who say, we don't really need to believe all the things in here, so heaven and hell, let's get rid of that, because that's kind of scary. Oh, we'll keep heaven, we'll get rid of hell. Uh, traditional marriage, man and woman, let's get rid of that, because that's not really hip anymore. Uh, our country decided that's not cool, so let's throw that out. Um, the inherency of scripture, saying that this is actually breathed by God, let's throw that out. Um, saying there's one God and one way to God through Jesus, that's too inclusive, so let's throw that out, and just say all religions are good. That's secular Christianity, okay? That's, that's, that's guys that are, that are starting to dismantle the Bible and throw out things that God meant to be there. And ultimately, what you're doing in that is you're putting yourself in the position of God. Why? Because you're saying, I decide what's true in here, not God. Okay, so if I think marriage should be this, then I'm gonna say marriage is this. It's put yourself, you're putting yourself in God's position, Moralistic therapeutic deism, that's a term that's kind of been out more and more. And what that is, is sort of a way to, to, to talk about what Christianity is starting to look like in our country. Moralistic therapeutic deism. It's basically saying that Christianity and God, really, the religion of Christianity just exists for me. It exists for my joy, it exists for making me happy, it makes me feel like a better person, so I do good things throughout the week, I go to church, I take out my neighbor's garbage, I mow their lawn or whatever, I feel good about myself, and then I go home. There's no dying to self, there's no taking up your cross, there's no deciding who you're gonna follow. It's ultimately just to make yourself feel better by doing good things, and that's a lot of what Christianity is today. Again, it is a God complex. Okay, it's saying I don't need to answer to God, I don't need to submit to God, I don't need to listen to God, I just wanna do whatever makes me happy, and if that's religion, then great. Okay, it puts you in the position of God. It's a God complex. Now, in the garden, Adam had the first God complex issue, didn't he? He was in the garden, he was submissive under God. God said, this is your place, you can walk freely with me, don't do this. Jeff covered this Sunday, we all know the story, but it's true, okay? Uh, he had a position and a moment where Satan entered and lied to him, and Adam made a decision, and that decision, he decided to no longer make God God, and to put himself in that position. 
You know, God said to not eat that fruit, but I'm going to do it because I think I should, because God's holding out on me, okay? So in that moment, all of mankind, you and me, are cursed because of that, and we all suffer from a God complex. Just like Adam, just like Eve, just like everyone in the world, we all suffer from a complex that makes us think that we should be in charge of our life. Perfect example not saying don't vote for him, but it's just kind of funny. Donald Trump, you wanna talk about a God complex, okay? We watched a documentary about this guy. He thinks he's God, he really does. He thinks he's the man. And why is he running for presidency? Not because he wants to serve the country or because he loves uni, because he wants to be God. He would never say that, of course, that sounds obtuse, but he really does. He really thinks he's the man and that he can do anything and, and, and he's, he's, there's no one's gonna stop him from being the president. It's a God complex. That's an extreme, but you and I do the same things. Okay, it's a God complex, thinking that you are God. Now, having said all that, what does it have to do with Esther? What we're gonna look at today in chapter one of Esther is the epitome, the epitome of a man with a God complex. I can't think of a better story. In fact, in all of history, I can't think of a better person, besides maybe Satan himself, that would better represent what a God complex looks like, carried out to the nth degree, okay? And that's what we're gonna look at tonight. So. Book of Esther, set that aside for a second. We're gonna do a little bit of foundation work, a little bit of groundwork, just to give you guys some background, understand kind of what this book uh, really is about, and, and uh, just, just a platform for it. So, Book of Esther. Few things. The Book of Esther is rated R, okay? So, if you're not 21 or 18, you gotta, you gotta go. I'm just kidding, sorry. Uh, no, the Book of, it's really rated R. Okay, seriously, you know, like, you're, you're, you're in the movie store, and. This, I think the people at the movie store think I'm insane because I'm standing there and I'm just like looking at the back of every one and every single one I flip over that looks good is rated R, rated R, rated R, PG-13, rated R, sexuality, blah, 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 just every single one. This book is rated R and if you were to flip it over the back, it would say it's rated R for sensuality, for promiscuity, what did I say? Promiscuity, for violence, and for gore, okay? That is the book of Esther. So we're going to not preach it PG, because this is adult church, okay? We're gonna preach it rated R, but don't worry, okay? It's gonna be okay. Um, it's, it's, it's rated R, just so you know. There's a lot of rated R stuff in the Bible. It's kind of interesting. I'm not, it's not a justification to watch rated R movies, but there's a lot of rated R stuff. Song of Solomon, just saying. Um, Ruth is one of two books in the Bible named after a woman, which is cool. There's not a lot of books in the Bible that, that are actually focused on a woman. Uh, anybody know what the other one is? Ruth, yeah, Ruth and Esther. Uh, so cool, great books for women's Bible studies, right, to study and look at. Um, uh, Esther traditionally would have been read once a year by the Jews at the Feast of Purim. I think that's how you say it, Purim. Is that, is that right, Mary? Yeah, okay. Um, just, say, just say yes. Uh, every year, the Jews, and this was the oral tradition of the Jews, every year they would read at different feasts, different books of the scripture, and every year at the Feast of Purim, they would read out of the book of Esther with a few other books from the Old Testament. So if you were a Jewish kid, you would have grown up hearing the book of Esther every year. You would have loved the story. It's an exciting story. It's an interesting story. I'm sure it would have been much more exciting to listen to than like Leviticus if you were a 10-year-old, you know. Um, I read it every year. Uh, we don't know who the author is. Okay, we don't know, such as a lot of the Old Testament books. People, some people think it's Mordecai, who's a character we'll see. Some people think it's Ezra who was uh, sort of a contemporary in the, in the timeline there. Uh, and some people think it's Nehemiah who wrote the book we just, what was in the book we just read. Um, even though this book made it into the canon, even though it's in the scriptures, even though it's there, 
it's highly debated. It's kind of a hot button book. Like people argue and argue about whether it should be in here, whether it's supposed to be in here, and we'll sort of explain why. Um, Even Martin Luther, the great reformer, actually said literally that he wished the book had never been written, which is kind of interesting along with the book of James. Um, Esther is a narrative book, okay? It's a narrative book, so that means it reads like a story, okay? It reads like a story, um, which is fun. Those are are interesting just to even just to read and to see the drama unfold. Um, And also the history of Esther is spot on. It's spot on. It fits in perfectly with the history that we see in the world, the Persian Empire, all the other things that were going on in the world. So that's exciting. Now, we need to figure out where to place it, okay? It's right here in the Bible, but I want you guys to listen. This is really important. The Bible is not chronological. Everybody got that? Okay? I didn't, I didn't know that for a while, and it really confused me. <laughs> like, seriously? Uh, the Bible is not chronological. The guys that, des- that put it together decided it would be a really good idea. Um, to put them all together by category primarily. So you have books of the law, you have books of poetry, you have books of uh, prophetic nature, uh, you have gospels, you have epistles, so on and so forth. And so Esther is not really in order, and strangely enough, which is funny, uh, it's actually before Nehemiah in history, even though it comes directly after Nehemiah. So I don't know why they couldn't have just put it before Nehemiah, it would have made more sense. But historically in the timeline, it happens before the book of Nehemiah. Esther is a post-exilic book, okay? This is important to know. One of the giant ways you can uh, divide the Bible into sections is the exile, okay? What the exile is is that Israel, and we we talked all about it in the book of Nehemiah, and even Amos, because Amos was pointing towards it. The exile was that God's people were established, they were a kingdom, they were following him, and then they chose to not follow him time and time and time again, and God warned them and said, there's gonna be a time where you will be exiled. You'll be scattered abroad through all the nations. It's gonna happen, it's coming, it's gonna gonna happen for 70 years. And then after those 70 years, you'll be restored back into your homeland. That's the exile. So a lot of the books in the Old Testament are pre-exilic, okay, before the exile, books like Amos, where it's like, it's gonna happen, it's gonna happen. All the books like Samuel and Kings and Chronicle, a lot of those kinds of books. And then a lot of the books are post-exilic, like Daniel, where Israel's been carried away, like Nehemiah, like Ezra, and like Esther, books that take place in the four to 500 years before Christ came, when Israel was no longer a nation, when they're scattered all over the place. Uh, Esther takes, uh, occurs during the world reign of the Persian Empire. So if you guys are history buffs, you might kinda know what what that really means, but just to kind of break that down, the Persian Empire was birthed out of the Babylonian Empire. Okay, the Babylonian Empire was like the first giant one world ruling empire that just ruled, just ruled over the entire ancient world. After the Babylonian Empire, the Persian Empire came in and conquered them uh, and, and became the world ruling empire for about 200 years. After that, Greece came onto the scene and Greece conquered, and then after that we got the Romans, and that was sort of the last time we've had a one world ruling empire. That's all in the book of Daniel. So this takes place during the Persian Empire, just like Nehemiah, okay, a little bit before, but just like Nehemiah, um, but prior to the book of Nehemiah. Okay, almost done with the intro. Three things, really quickly, before we dig into this book, um, three things we need to think about as we study it, because this is actually a complex book. This is actually a book that people, um, one of the best commentators on this book, the NIV application commentary, uh, she actually said it's better not to teach through this book verse by verse (laughs) because it's just, it's exceptionally hard. Um, 
and, and, and there's some reasons why. The, the big one, the blaring reason why this is a hard book to study um, is because God's not in it. <laughs> it doesn't mention God at all. It doesn't mention prayer. It doesn't mention the Lord. It doesn't mention anything like that. It's just very much a historical book of what happened. Um, it does have our key character, Esther, who is Jewish, um, in it, but that's about it. Okay? There's, no, uh, there's no law, there's no mention of Torah, there's no mention of temple, there's no mention of any of that kind of stuff. And because of that, it's a scary book to teach, because okay? it's not obvious applications. It's not like the book of Daniel where he decides that he's going to pray anyways and he gets thrown into the lion's den and da-da-da-da. Like, it's not like that. I'm not going to eat the king's meat and, and whatever. No, it's not like that. It's just very much a historical thing and it's R-rated. There's a lot of stuff that happens in here that seems sketchy, okay? So for that reason, it's extremely hard. But to that, I would say, keep in mind as we study this book, that sometimes in the absence of God, we see more clearly than ever the need for him, right? I don't know if you guys, but I have seasons in my life where I shut God out, seasons in my life where God was not extremely involved in my life because of my choice, and those were the seasons where more than ever I knew how much I needed him. Like, I have to have Jesus right now. He is all that matters. And I think that as we look at the depravity in this book, we see uh, the God complexes in this book, we see the promiscuity in this book, we see all of the sinfulness in this book, we're gonna see the need for Jesus to come 400 years later and to solve this problem, okay? So I think we can read it through that lens comfortably and, and, and just keeping that in mind. Um, also, I think oftentimes God reveals himself through unreligious things. Okay, um, and I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with the Pure Flix movies or, or Christian movies. In fact, we just watched a Christian movie the other day and it was really good. Um, totally um, made me thankful for Jesus. Um, but also, a lot of times, God can reveal himself through unspiritual and unreligious things, just through raw and real life, because God is involved in every detail of everything in every aspect of life. Have you guys ever watched a movie that's not a Christian movie and you've just been blown away by like, all of a sudden you're like, man, I'm thankful for the gospel. You guys ever, have you ever had that before? Um, one of my favorite movies ever is Gladiator. It's a fantastic movie. Um, I, I mean, I think every guy likes that movie, right? You know, and, and, and it's really, it's not made by Christians. There's no Christian theme to it. There's no mention uh, of Jesus or anything like that, but it's a fantastic story. You have this guy who was a, a Roman leader of legions, uh, a, a, an honorable man, a respectful man, and then all of a sudden he's humbled and made a slave. Sound familiar? And then he has to be a slave, but he, he doesn't want greatness, he doesn't want power, but he's just thrust upon him. He ends up sacrificing his life in the end for the country and, and for the greater good. And it's like, man, that makes that reminds me of the gospel. Here's Jesus, the suffering servant, who, who no matter what, I mean, he is the ruler, and everyone is drawn to him, and everyone wants to follow him, but he's humble at the same time. So my point being is that even though God isn't necessarily mentioned in this book, God is in every detail of everything. Okay, and he's in the raw and in the real and he's in the wartime and then he's in the good time and he's in the hard time and in the bad time. He's in the religious and the unreligious. He's working all the time through everything. Okay, people ask, you know, what about the people that are living in, in, in Upper Yubangi and they don't know the gospel? Can you say, God's working there and he works through all kinds of things, not just religious tracts, not just through sermons, but God works through all kinds of things, through creation. The very creation itself proclaims the glory of God. So we can learn through this book, not only from the absence of God and the need for God, but we can look just through the raw and the real nature of life because this is a history book, which means it records life the way it is. And life points to the need for Jesus. It just does. The hurt, the pain, the sorrow, it all points to the need for someone to come fix it, okay? So that's a good reason to read the book. 
Secondly, something to think about as we study this book, is that God is working all throughout the world. Okay? Most of the books take place in Israel, okay? in the homeland, in Jerusalem, like our last book we studied, Nehemiah, where they're rebuilding the wall, and, and it's all taking place in, God's, in Zion, in God's holy city, in God's holy land. Most of the Bible takes place in there. But this book actually happens hundreds of miles elsewhere in a pagan country with a pagan king and a pagan land, and God's still working. He's still pulling the strings. He's still making things happen. And and that's exciting because God works everywhere all the time. And then thirdly, the last thing to think about before we dig into it is we have to look at this book through the lens of the gospel. I know we throw that word out a lot at Heritage, but it's not because it's trendy. (laughs) We throw it out because it's everything. Because Jesus is the gospel. Okay, Jesus is the gospel. The gospel is Jesus, okay? And we have to read this through the lens of Jesus. What, what, what most people do when they approach books like this is they try to find the star of the book and then they try to find, uh, you, you know, little moral things they can take from, oh, see, Esther did a good job at this. Or, see, Esther was great at that and we need to be like her. No, not at all, <laughs> okay? That's not the point of this book. We're not trying to be like Mordecai. We're not trying to be like Esther. We're definitely not trying to be like Xerxes. We're trying to be like Jesus, Okay, the point of this book is not to find a little thing, oh, don't be like this or be like that. The point is just to see, man, we need Jesus because look how depraved people are. Okay, that's how we're gonna read this book. That's gonna be the lens that we're going to look through, through the lens of the gospel, through the lens of the need why Jesus had to come. Now, next week, we'll get to know most of the characters in our book, like Esther, like Mordecai, like Haman. But this week, we're gonna meet one guy um, and he's our God complex guy. So are you guys ready to do this? Let's get to work. All right, verse one. Esther chapter one, verse one. Now, in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces. In those days when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the citadel. Okay, his Persian name is Ahasuerus. His Greek name is Xerxes. Okay, we know him by his Greek name, Xerxes. Okay, now this guy is primarily famous, at least in our time frame, especially because of Hollywood, because of the 300 Spartans, okay? If you guys are familiar with that story, uh, when, when, when Xerxes and his mighty millions of people army came to conquer Greece, and they were sort of hung up and snagged by these 300 Spartans, which actually kind of was a catalyst for the entirety of the Greek army to take over in the end, which is really cool history. Um, this is what he's famous for, ultimately, uh, King Xerxes. He was known as Xerxes the Great, okay? Um, so was Herod, they were both bums. Um, his father was King Darius. You might remember King Darius from books like Daniel. Um, Xerxes assumed the throne when he was 32 years old, so a young guy. Um, he basically just got it all from his dad. His father, Darius, just handed it all off to him. Uh, it says in our text that he ruled for three years, uh, and then the story that we're about to read comes into play. So he's about 35 years old. He's still a young guy. Uh, but like, it's like an Aaron Beamish. You're like 30, you're 33? 30, you're not 35, are you? Okay, so never mind. Not an Aaron Beamish. Older than Aaron Beamish. Uh, bad example. I was going to have you come stand here the whole time so everyone could picture you as Xerxes. That'd be great. Just kidding. Um, listen, this guy ruled over 127 provinces. You're like, big deal. What does that mean? Okay, that's a lot. That's a lot of provinces from India all the way up to Ethiopia, it says. Now, back then, in in 500 BC, India to Ethiopia had another name. You know what it was? The world. 
okay? That's what it was called. That was the world. They didn't know about America. They didn't know about all the different places that, that we have on our globe charted out knowing the world is round. They just knew from India to Ethiopia. That was the world primarily, okay, in essence. And Xerxes and the Persian Empire ruled it all. All of it, okay? He was the king of the world, the known world. He's essentially the most powerful man that had ever existed. It's important that you understand that. Now, this nation, Persia, was sort of like what Rome did. They would just take over and take over and take over. And as they would take over, they would steal and plunder and rape and take everything that they wanted from those nations, and they would just absorb a nation. So King Xerxes had wealth, but he had wealth not just from one place. He had wealth from the entirety of the known world. He had stones from wherever he wanted to build his palaces. He had women from wherever, money from wherever, drink from wherever, food from wherever. He had everything he ever wanted from every place in the world, and he took it all through power. Okay, this was the Persian king uh, Xerxes. This is what he was known for. Just like the Jews, right? The Jews are a classic example. They got taken over, the temple got ruined, got sacked, all of the stuff got taken out of the temple and became the king's wealth. And so imagine a guy today that stepped onto the scene and began to take over the entirety of our known world, took over China, took over Australia, took over Canada, I thought that would be hard, took over Mexico, I don't, I, I don't know, that was too far. Um, maybe it would be hard, I don't know anything about Canada. Do you guys know anything about Canada? I don't know anything about Canada. I feel like they're, they're our neighbor, I don't know anything about them. Um, Squirrel. Okay. Just a ima- man. That was bad. That was like, that was sidetracked. Okay. Uh, just imagine someone that took over the entire known world. Okay. Canada. All of it. All of it. Okay. Power. The guy would have power and have to have, command quite a bit of respect and power to do that. That is Xerxes. Now, most importantly, okay, most importantly about Xerxes, you have to understand this. He thought he was a god. You understand that? He didn't just think he was the man. He just didn't think he was awesome and he was attractive and he had money and he was strong. No, he thought he was a god. Such did, and so did most kings back then. So did the pharaohs. So did his father, Darius. So did Caesar. Okay, they all thought they were god. Why? Well, first of all, because man's pride is no end. Okay? So if man is given the opportunity to be prideful, he'll take it to the farthest extreme, which is to say, yeah, I'm a deity. And secondly, because if you're a god, it gives you unbridled power. That means that nobody can tell you what to do. Nobody can say, uh, yeah, hey, Xerxes, maybe you should stop lopping people's heads off. You know, maybe you should stop stealing and taking over nations. What are you going to say to me? I'm a god. There's no higher power than me, Xerxes would say. So he essentially, he can do anything and everything that he wants to do. Nobody can say anything because he is a god. He can rule in any way that he wants. So essentially, and follow me with this, Xerxes is the ultimate example of the God. What was my thing? God complex. You guys are listening. I'm so proud of you guys. Um, the ultimate example of a God complex. I mean, he really thinks he's God. Not just, like, not just the guy like, like whoever, you know, not this guy that thinks he's awesome, but the guy that literally thinks he's a God. He's so full of himself that he thinks that he is deity. Now look at verse three. In the third year of his reign... He gave a feast for all of his officials and servants. Now, that's not like a few, okay? That's not like 10. It's like hundreds, maybe hundreds of thousands of officials. All the people that reigned over all the 127 provinces. This is a big group. 
and the army of Persia, which is huge, and Media, which is huge, and the nobles and the governors of the provinces were before him. So he throws a party for all of the important quote-unquote people. While he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and the pomp of his greatness for many days, how many days? 180 days. You guys ever partied for six months straight? I have not. Six months straight, he throws a party on the government's dime, 180 days. And it's not just for a few buddies, okay? It's for like everyone that rules over anything and everything, including the army. Okay, it's a huge party. And why does he do it? So that he could show the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness. He's showing off. He wants everyone to know and everyone to understand how rich he is. This is the number one sign of the God complex. The number one sign of the God complex is is self-glorification. It's, hey, everybody, come see how good I look, right? It's, hey, everybody, I'm amazing. Hey, everybody, I'm strong. Hey, everybody, I'm powerful. Hey, everybody, I have wealth. I have riches. And this is exactly what we do, right? I mean, when we think we're awesome at something, even though we're not ever, (laughs) we think we're awesome. We want everyone to know. Like, we just do. If you don't believe me, and this isn't a rant on social media, it's just a rant on social media, um, look at social media. Social media is like the fire under the God complex barrel. I mean, it just boils the God complex. It makes everyone, like, God complex at their fingertips constantly, okay? What about Twitter? Hey, everybody, see how clever I am. See how funny I am. See the funny things that I say, the funny things that I quote, you know? constantly. Hey, everybody, look how great I am. Look at Instagram. Everybody, look how good I look in my selfie. Look how good my looking my family is. Look how awesome my new car is. Look at what I'm doing today. Isn't my life fun? Isn't my life interesting? Isn't my life extreme? Look at all the cool things I do. Don't you wish your life was like mine? That's Instagram in a lot of ways, right? Okay. Uh, Facebook, same thing. Okay. Uh, I'll confess, there's an app on my phone called Map My Run. Okay? I love Map My Run because when I go for a run, it sends a notification, a push notification to all of my running friends, Jeff and David Enright and, and different guys in the church, Walter, and it tells them how far I ran. And I love that part because I'm like, woo, I just ran this far and now everyone gets to see how far I ran. I mean, it's so stupid. It's a God complex, right? It's like, I'm, I think I just did something cool and the funnest part is everyone gets to see how cool I am. I, I know, it's ridiculous. I'm glad none of them are here because I'm never going to comment on my runs again. Um, <laughs> it's a God complex, and we've built a culture that feeds our God complex because we love to be God. We love to be important. We love to be special, even though all of us are also like starving and in insecurity at the same time, however that works. We like hate ourselves and love ourselves, think we're nothing and everything at the same time. It's so, it's so weird. We're all exactly like Xerxes. What's the difference? The difference is that Xerxes has everything in the world and that's exactly what we would do. (laughs) What a jerk, man. He spent tons of money having a party for six months to show off how awesome he is. We'd probably do the same thing if we were in his shoes. Okay, I'm just saying. The God complex is just being carried out to the degree it's allowed to be carried out to because he's got the money to do it. We're all in that same position. Not only do we make ourselves God, but we also love to make other people God. So not only is there Xerxes throwing this party so everyone can see how awesome he is, there's also millions of people coming to the party to see how awesome he is. Okay, so this is the other side of culture, right? Not only do we love to be praised for what we think is cool, we love to praise people for what we think is cool with celebrities. Why are we obsessed with celebrities, politicians, athletes, 
Okay, we're, we're obsessed with making much of people, making other people God, just like what's happening in this scenario. Xerxes' goal is to show off how much of a God he is. Don't believe I'm a God? Come check out my six-month party. Okay, it's awesome. He invites all the most important people so everyone can see, look, look who he knows. He knows all the right people. Verse five. When these days were completed, the king gave for all the people present in Susa, the citadel, both great and small, a feast lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. So then, if that wasn't enough, he throws a party for everybody in Susa, all the commoners, all the other people. They all get to come in and eat for seven full days. And then verses six through eight, we kind of see what some of the decor is. There were white cotton curtains and violet hanging Hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple. Okay, purple, by the way, was like designer, okay? If you had purple, it was designer because that was like the hardest color to get and the most expensive color to get, okay? So you didn't have to, you didn't, your pants didn't have to say Hudson. They just had to be purple and you were like, you were on it, okay? Um, Hudson's are, they're like a cool jean, Doug. I just, they're, you, you know, you're fashionable. I'm sorry, I should have picked on someone else to silver rods and marble pillars, also couches of gold. I had a gold couch once, I took it back, it was too hard. Um, wasn't comfortable. Silver on a mosaic pavement, I'm not even gonna pronounce that word. Marble, mother of pearl and precious stones. Listen to this, drinks were served in golden vessels, vessels of different kinds. That means everybody got their own custom gold vessel. Okay, that's a lot of gold vessels. All of them are different, it's immaculate. Royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king, and drinking was according to this edict. Here's the edict of drinking. There is no compulsion, okay? Drink as much as you possibly want. For the king had given orders to all the staff of his palace to do as much, or to do as each man desired. It's never a good idea. Never a good, it's open bar, drink all you want for six months, okay? Horrible idea. Now, verse nine, we're gonna meet our next character, Queen Vashti. So we've met Xerxes. You guys feel like you know him a little bit? You're picturing Aaron Beamish, right, in your head? Okay, good. Um, <laughs> sorry, dude. Uh, you shouldn't have sat right there. Um, okay, let's meet Queen Vashti. Verse nine, Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women in the palace that belonged to King Ahasuerus. So apparently the queen decides she's gonna throw her own party off to the side for the ladies. Verse 10, on the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry, okay, that means he's slammered, okay? He's completely wasted. He's been wasted for six months, okay? He commended Mehuman, Bistha, Harbona, Bigtha, Abagatha, Zethar, and Carcass. I got those completely wrong, but that's okay. Seven eunuchs who were served in the presence of the king, Howard Hadjuris. Here's the rated R. Okay, why are they eunuchs? Because he doesn't want them sleeping with his entourage. Okay, he doesn't want them sleeping with the women that he is around that he wants to sleep with. So he has them become eunuchs, so he doesn't have to worry about it. It's horrible, okay? It's absolutely horrible. Verse 11, to bring the queen Vashti. So he sends his eunuchs, verse 11, to bring queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. Okay, now judging by the response we're about to see from the queen, it's kind of implicit, I think at least, that the reason that this drunk, bum king wanted his attractive wife to come was so that his 
drunk buddies could ogle her and look at her inappropriately and most likely so she could be promiscuous, okay? And she says, no way. Good for her, <laughs> okay? Good for her. And we don't know that for sure, but either way, they're all drunk. It's a bad scenario. His wife doesn't want to come. She doesn't want to be there. So verse 12, Queen Vashti refuses to come at the king's command, delivered by the eunuchs. At this, the king became enraged, and his anger burned within him. Why is his anger burning within him? Because he has a God complex. How dare my wife refuse me? How dare my wife not come and let my drunk buddies stare at her and see how attractive she is? How dare her? Okay, God complex. He thinks that he's God, and so he's infuriated, he's enraged when his wife tells him that she won't come. Verse 13, then... The king said to the wise men, okay, all of his, his people that, that help him with counsel and things like that, who knew the times, okay, that means that they know the culture, they know what's going on around, for this was the king's procedure toward all who versed in the law and judgment. Verse 14. The men next to him being, here we go again, Karshina, Shethar, Admathah, Tarshish, Meres, Mersanah, and Memukan. I'd like to see you guys do any better. The seven princes of Persia and Media who saw the king's face and sat first in the kingdom. According to the law, what is to be done to Queen Vashti, he asks. So she's disobeyed me. She didn't do what I said. You guys know the cultural, you know the cultural climate. What do I need to do to her? And because she has not performed the command of King Ahasuerus, delivered by the eunuchs, then Memicon, one of his council, said in the presence of the king and the officials, Quote, not only against the king has Queen Vashti done wrong, but also against all the officials and all the peoples who are in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus. For the queen's behavior will be made known to all women, causing them to look at their husbands with contempt, since they will say King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, and she did not come. Verse 18, this very day the noblewoman of Persia and Media who have heard of the queen's behavior will say the same to all the king's officials and there will be contempt and wrath and plenty. So he's terrified, the council's terrified that Vashti is going to cause this uproar of women that won't listen to their husbands. Verse 19, and if it please the king, let a royal order go out from him and let it be written among the laws of, the, of, the, of Persians and the Medes so that it may not be repealed, that Vashti is never again to come before King Ahasuerus. Let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. So when the decree made by the king is proclaimed throughout all his kingdom, for it is vast, all women will give honor to their husbands high and low alike. This advice pleased the king. And the princes and the king did as Memicon proposed. He sent letters to all the royal provinces, to every province in its own script, and to every people in its own language, that every man be master in his own household and speak according to the language of his people. Okay, summation. You ready? We have a spoiled, arrogant, rich king who thinks that he is God, who thinks that he has the power to do anything and everything that he wants to do. He spends six months drinking, okay, and doting on and gloating on himself and his own power. And then after a while, he decides he wants to show off his wife. He sends his eunuchs to go get her. They say, she says, no way. Then he pulls his counsel and he says, what do we do about this? And they say, if we don't punish her, then all of the women are going to uprise and they're not gonna respect us and they're not gonna do what we say. So we have to make an example out of her, okay? 
And Xerxes says, okay, so he basically ruins her. She's not his wife anymore. She's not the queen anymore. She's nothing. Done. He's going to go find himself a new wife that's 20 years younger and move on. Okay? What a guy. It's exactly what happens. Sounds like an episode of Jerry Springer, doesn't it? I mean, good grief. Like, this is ridiculous. Next week, just wait. It's an episode of The Bachelor when he finds his new wife. It's insane. Yeah, read ahead. Um, It's ridiculous. This guy's a pig, okay? He's a pig, and he's got a God complex. But the point of this message isn't to tear on him because the reality is, is that what he did in, in history is something we're all capable of doing, something that we all do in so many ways, that so many ways that resemble that. Here's the result of having a God complex, okay? The ultimate example, Xerxes, the result is It's like this, okay? You remember, all, through, all throughout the Bible, we see people trying to make themselves God or trying to put someone in the place of God. Think about the history of Israel. We want a king. We want a king so bad. Why do they want a king? Because they want to be ruled by a man. Because they don't want to be ruled by God. There's this, this thing because of Adam that is just buried deep in their heart that they can't shake that says, we don't want to be ruled by God. So we want a king. And they got Saul. Bad decision, okay? Bad decision. The same thing that we think right now on election season when we're all picking our favorite candidate and saying that guy's gonna fix it. That guy's gonna fix it. That's the guy right there. It's the same thing that people have been doing since the beginning of this country, since the beginning of mankind, is thinking that anyone can rule and fix and change anything in this world besides Jesus, okay? The God complex, is, it's, it's It's vast. We all want to be God and we all want someone else to be God. We don't want him to be God. We'd rather it be whoever the next guy is. We'd rather it be ourselves. We'd rather it be our favorite leader. Guys, when I got saved, when I was 16, and I was just mopping a floor and I just absolutely hated myself because everything that I was doing sucked. Can I use that word? I'm sorry. Yeah, it just sucked, okay, it sucked. Everything that I touched, everything that I did, everything that I, that, that I, socially, I just would screw it up. And I was so mad at myself. Why do I screw up everything? And, and it hit me in a minute. It's because you have a God complex. It's because you are running your life. And God needed to save me. Okay, he needed to save me, not not from, not from just the, the, the consequences of my life and things. He needed to save me from me. You know that? He needed to save me from me because I was doing a crummy job ruling my life. I was sitting on the throne of my heart and I was doing a horrible job being God because I'm not. And he wanted to do a fantastic job. And I didn't want to let him sit on the throne of my heart because I thought if he sits on the throne of my heart, my life will be boring. (laughs) But he knew better. And he came in and he changed my life. The cure for the God complex is Jesus. It's Jesus. He knows, did you know that? God knows that each of us have this problem with worshiping him. He knows that each of us have this issue that keeps us from making him God, from obeying him, from trusting him, from having faith in him, from surrendering to him, from being submissive to him. He knows that. He understands that. If he didn't know that, if he didn't understand that, he wouldn't have sent Jesus to do it for us because he knows we couldn't do it for ourselves. So just really quickly in closing, what does all this mean to us? The story, 
I mean, what's the point of it? All I want to do is just simply point out three ways that Jesus is better tonight. Jesus is better than that Jerry Springer episode we just watched, okay? Because <laughs> seriously, like, that's the result of man ruling man. That's the result of man sitting on the, heart, on the throne of man's heart. And I don't want that. I want Jesus, because he's better. First of all, Jesus is a better husband. Did you know that? If you're taking notes, write that down. Jesus is a better husband. In our text, well, first of all, let me say this. If you guys don't know, if you're new um, to, the, to the scriptures and you haven't seen this, the picture of the church, you and I, is a picture of marriage. Jesus is the groom and we are the bride. It's this beautiful thing, this, this unity that happens eternally. Okay? And marriage is just simply an echo, a fallen echo, unfortunately, of a beautiful, eternal, and, and, and God-like thing. Okay? So that's marriage. Now, in our story, we have a story of a guy, who, a husband, who's looking to show off his trophy wife and throwing, throwing her to the curb, ruining her life, getting rid of her completely, all because she wouldn't obey him, all because she wouldn't buy into his God complex, right? because she knew he wasn't a God. Okay, he completely throws her to the side. Jesus, the groom of the bride, purchased his bride. He didn't throw her to the side. Jesus came to the earth to actually take the place of the bride, to purchase the bride. He bled for his bride. He was patient with his bride. He, he doesn't just kick us aside and kick us out. He exalts his bride. He, he makes us look glorious and beautiful like Romans says, we're vessels of honor that will be lifted up in heaven to, to show off his glory forever. He clothes us in white linens. He gives us eternal gifts. He, he carries us when we can't carry ourselves. He's the perfect husband, not like Xerxes. He's the better husband. He leads us. He leads his bride by the Holy Spirit giving us direction where we need. So number one, Jesus is the better husband, okay? Number two, Jesus is a better king, okay? Jesus is a better king. I'm just gonna read something that I thought was really <laughs> anointed that a pastor said about this. Jesus is the better king. Why is he the better king? Xerxes was the son of Darius, but Jesus is the son of God. Xerxes never tasted poverty nor humility, but Jesus tasted both poverty and humility to, the, to identify with us. Xerxes used his power to abuse women, but Jesus used his power to honor women. Xerxes spent his entire life being served, but Jesus spent his entire life serving others. Xerxes killed his enemies with an army of millions, but Jesus died for his enemies, saving billions. Xerxes sat on a throne in Susa, but Jesus sits on a throne in heaven. Xerxes was the most powerful man on earth, but Jesus made the heavens and the earth, and he rules over all creation. Xerxes said he would rule wherever the sun set, but only Jesus made the sun and rules over all creation. Xerxes died, and today no one worships Xerxes, by the way, as God, but Jesus conquered death, and today billions worship Jesus as God. Nobody cares about Xerxes. Nobody cares about him. History, gone. Xerxes thought he was a man who became a god, but only Jesus is God who became a man. Xerxes' kingdom had subjects from many nations, but Jesus' kingdom has joyful worshipers from every nation. Xerxes threw enormous banquets, but the one Jesus is preparing for us makes his pale in comparison. Xerxes' kingdom came to an end, but Jesus' kingdom has no end. And Xerxes declared himself king of kings, but he died 
and stood before and was judged by the one and the only king of kings, the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the better Jesus, the greater king, the greater master. And then thirdly and most importantly, please listen in for this. Jesus wants to replace your God complex. He wants to be the solution to that God complex. Guys, there's nothing more exhausting than trying to be God, okay? None of us are pompous or obtuse enough to say that we're God, but subconsciously, to try to live your life in a way where you're the boss, where you make the calls, where you decide you're the master of your fate, right? That's exhausting. There's nothing more exhausting than refusing to admit that you failed. And when you have a God complex, you can't admit that. You can't admit failure, so you hide it, you make excuses, There's nothing more exhausting than refusing to show weakness. When you have a God complex, you don't show weakness. You can't show weakness because you're the savior of your life. If you're weak, who's gonna save you? You have to save yourself. There's nothing more exhausting than trying to outwork and outrun your guilt. It's exhausting. Every one of you in here has done it. And some of you in here are still doing it. I catch myself doing it all the time, trying to be God all the time. But Jesus said this, okay? He said, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. What Jesus is saying in that moment, okay, he was a carpenter. I love thinking about this. He was a carpenter. So when he said that, he understood that you make a yoke for a specific animal. You carve that yoke to fit that animal's back so that it's comfortable, so that it's carryable, so that it's doable. And what it means to be a Christian is not something that's not doable. It's something that he did for you and made a yoke for you that fits you perfectly and specifically. And what we do is we put on another yoke, a yoke of bondage, the yoke that says, I'm God, I'm in charge, I make the calls, I make the rules, I decide, and God says, when are you gonna come to me and let me put my yoke on you? That's easy, that's light. Guys, listen, if your Christian walk right now is stressful and anxiety-filled and hard and you feel like God doesn't like you and you feel like you're a screw-up, you're not wearing his yoke. I'm not talking about genuine repentance and and I'm not talking about that kind of stuff. I'm talking about guilt and shame and trying to escape that when the only way to do it is to put his yoke on. He's just saying, do you want to rest? Do you want to break? Put my yoke on. Just do it. It's that simple. Stop making your own decisions. Stop trying to determine your own purpose. Stop trying to prove yourself. Stop trying to prove to everyone that you're strong and that you're successful. Stop working for God's affection. Stop making excuses, blaming other people for your sin, playing church, striving in your flesh, beating yourself up, and let me be the king. Let me be the God. All of those things I just said are not things that we have to go do. They're things we just need to stop doing. Jesus isn't asking us to go out and do everything. He's just asking us to surrender. and Say, God, I trust you to do it. I'm gonna put your yoke on. I trust you, you're God. I'm not God, you're God. And you have the best for me, and you know the best for me. I'll just end with this, I know I went long. There's this cool story in Daniel, okay? The book of Daniel, it's fantastic, chapter two. Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, has this dream. It terrifies him, scares him to death. Is this dream, and he can't figure out what it is, so he brings all of his magicians and soothsayers and wise people, and he says, tell me what this dream is, and they say, how can we tell you what your dream is? You're crazy. And he says, well then, if you can't tell me, 
then you're all dead, okay? Including in that group was a young man named Daniel, okay? Daniel feared God, and he said, they're gonna kill me, and they're gonna kill my friends, so I'm gonna go to God, and I'm gonna pray that God would give me the answer to this dream. So he goes in, and he prays before the Lord, and God gives him not only the dream, but the interpretation of the dream. He goes to Nebuchadnezzar, and he says, hey, I got it. Here's your dream. You dreamed that there was a giant statue. The statue was made out of various metals and irons, gold and silver and bronze, and the feet were mixed of iron and clay, and you saw this magnificent structure. And he says, yeah, how did you know that? Well, here's the interpretation, okay? Each of those metals represent a nation that's gonna rule the world. One of them, guess what, was Persia. The first one was Babylon, then Persia, then Greece. He begins to tell the king, and he says, you're the greatest of them all. You're the first one. Oh, great. Okay, but there's one more part to the dream. Okay, here's the statue. That's awesome. But then this stone, this magnificent stone that's not carved by hands, which means it's not a created thing, okay? It's a creator, follow me, comes out of heaven and falls and crushes every part of the statue. Gone. Dust, crushed. Who do you think the stone is? It's Jesus. And it terrifies Nebuchadnezzar. It terrifies him. So what does he do? He goes and makes a statue. Okay, Jesus not only has come into this world to crush every leadership and every kingdom that is not his, to build an eternal kingdom, kingdom that will never fail, but he's come as the stone to crush everything in your heart that would keep him from being on the throne. But he's a good husband. So he doesn't do it violently and abruptly, he does it patiently, and he does it gently. And that's what God's doing. I had a text from a buddy today, he's just like, dude, I'm struggling. My life is hard, work is hard, I feel like just kind of went on and on and on. And I thought to myself, as I was 20 minutes before I was gonna preach, I thought, man, maybe God's just gently, just gently breaking with the stone all of the things that are making you God in your life. I don't know about you guys, but the times in my life where I've had the least control were the times where I had the most peace. You ever had those moments? Man, I have no control right now. Everything seems like it could just disappear. And yet I have so much peace, why? because you're not God in that moment, and you realize it, and you know it. God is God, and you are not. And there's nothing more comforting than realizing that. Jesus is the stone, man. Amen? Would you guys stand with me? God, we're just thankful tonight because, really for me, I'm thankful that you know how much I struggle with trying to be my own God. I'm thankful that it's not like you don't understand. It's not like you don't get it. Jesus, you're the great high priest. You can relate with everything we feel, everything that we struggle with. And Jesus, you're making intercession for us even now. And Holy Spirit, I pray that you would be in this room and that it wouldn't be like, oh yeah, that's great, that's true, let's go home, but that this would sit heavy on our hearts, that we would take time to examine what is God in our life, and why are you not on the throne of our hearts? Jesus, I, play, I just pray by your Holy Spirit you would go around this room and begin to place your yoke on each of the necks of these believers in this room. Bring peace and rest and joy. 
through obedience and surrender. God, we give you our lives because you will do a whole lot of a better job with them than we will. God, we love you. We trust you. Thank you for being a better king, for being a better groom. We just pray these things in Jesus' name.